This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey guys, it's Haley. Welcome to Kindled. Today I have an excellent episode with Corey DeAngelis all about school choice, what it is, how it works, and how it could change the way that education is done in this country. Uh, Before I get into that, I want to let you know about a couple announcements. First of all, as always, love when you're able to leave a review for Kindled. If you have never done that, you can click over to the podcast app and leave a star rating and a few words about why you listen. That helps the show be found so much, and uh, I really appreciate it. The next thing I want to let you know about is our growing Patreon community. And this is where I release bonus episodes every single Friday, uh, do live Zoom calls once a month, And it's also the only place that I'm going to be publishing new content over the summer. So this is the first time I'm announcing this, but I am going to take a summer break from publishing these Monday episodes on Kindled. I've actually done this every year since I started, uh, and I've taken off June and July. Uh, That is my plan this year as well. It could be August, just depending on how the summer goes. Um, I really... I really need that break, love that break to get recharged and re-energized for the coming year. Um, and given that I publish weekly year round, other than that, uh, it's it's really essential for my mental health, time with my family, time with my kids, and time to just not be creating content, but to be living life. But I am going to continue publishing weekly episodes on Fridays Uh, over in Patreon. So if you want to continue hearing from me over the summer, that's the place to be. And we'll be continuing our live Zoom calls. And uh, yeah, that'll be an awesome way for you to continue getting content. If you are someone that has already listened through all of the episodes here on Kindled, which I have heard from a couple women who joined that that was why they joined because they ran out of episodes and they wanted more. So if that's you, hop over to patreon.com slash Kindled podcast, check it out uh, and you can you can join us there and you won't have a hiatus from Kindled all summer. And here's my conversation with Corey DeAngelis. Corey, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I've been following you for a while and the work that you are doing on school choice. But for those who are maybe new to you, could you tell listeners who you are and what you do? Absolutely. I'm Corey DeAngelis, the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children. I'm also affiliated with a couple of uh, libertarian-leaning think tanks, including the Cato Institute as an adjunct scholar and the Reason Foundation as a senior fellow. I'm also the executive director at the Educational Freedom Institute. It's really cool. Uh, before we get going on the topic of school choice, I'm just curious, what made you uh, get into this this area of research and, and study and interest that you have? Yeah, so I attended government-run schools all through K-12 education uh, in Texas. Uh, but for high school, I was able to attend something called a magnet school, which is still run by the local government, the district. 
mm-hmm. uh, but you're not residentially assigned to magnet schools. So it's a very low, it's a very uh, basic form of school choice. But uh, I saw that there was a huge difference in the school that I was residentially assigned to and this magnet school that I feel like had a big positive impact on my life trajectory, just seeing the differences in the learning going on in the classroom and then just the cultures at the two schools as well. So I think other people should have those types of opportunities as well. I don't think that anybody should be residentially assigned to a particular place. We don't do that with essentially any other business or industry. And even when we're talking about taxpayer funded initiatives like food stamps, we don't residentially assign low-income families to a government-run grocery store just because they're using taxpayer funding. We don't do this with higher education with Pell Grants. We don't say that you must take your taxpayer funding to a community college, for example, that's nearby your home. You're allowed to take the money to a private or public institution of, of your choosing, even if that's a religious private institution. Same thing with the federal Head Start program or other pre-K programs. The money goes again to the family and they can choose public or private. They're not residentially assigned to one particular place. So that's where I really got my first kind of experience with school choice myself. But then I started doing my degrees in economics, my bachelor's and master's. And that really started to open my eyes even more to the main problem with K-12 public education in the United States, which is this in this huge amount of monopoly power that's created through residential assignment and compulsory funding through property taxes. And then, so after that, I went to the university of Arkansas to, to get my PhD in education policy. And that's when I first started actually researching these programs that allow students to take their education dollars to a private school or the public school, if they'd like to, to keep that option. And my first study on the topic was of the Milwaukee voucher program. Uh, It's been around for a few decades now, Mm -hmm. and that study found that exposure to the program was associated with a reduction in criminal activity by the time the students were around 25 to 30 years of age. Wow. Wow, that's really interesting. I I didn't know that piece of your story that you had uh, started in public education and then, you know, having the opportunity yourself to see what choice did for you, what that opportunity did for you in your life and just change your trajectory. I mean, I would imagine that's, that's motivation to want, you know, that, that is your motivation to want to, to allow other children to have that same opportunity. Um, so I think you kind of just explained, um, for anyone who isn't sure what school choice means, I think you just explained it pretty well, but, uh, just in case anyone's confused one more time, why don't you give us like a, a couple sentences on what, what school choice means? Yeah, I've started to even call it something else instead of school choice because it's so confusing to so many people. Mm-hmm. I just call it funding students instead of systems or funding yeah. students directly because that's exactly what I mean. The money that would have followed the child to the school that they're residentially assigned to that's meant for their education would follow them to wherever they're getting an education. That could be the public school that they're residentially assigned to. It could be another public school. It could be a public charter school, which can be privately operated. It could be a private school. It could be homeschooling or micro schools or pandemic pods. Any government approved education expenditure, uh, you'd be able to take that money uh, to that provider of the service. Uh, So again, it's, it's funding the student directly just like we do with so many other programs. And what's interesting to me, honestly, is that with higher education, a lot of the same people who support funding people directly when it comes to Pell Grants or when it comes to pre-K programs, they get all up in arms only when it comes to the in-between years 
And I think the difference there is only one of power dynamics that choice is the norm with higher education and pre-K and mm-hmm. just about any other industry, but choice threatens an entrenched special interest only when it comes to K to 12 education. So they fight really hard against allowing families to take their money anywhere else. That is interesting. I had never thought of that, but yeah, that's, that's totally true. You don't have to go to a specific college to get a government grant, you know, you can take that money anywhere you go. So that's, that's interesting. So what is that special interest that you just mentioned, the entrenched special interest? Why, why is there so much resistance on this idea? Because to me, this is common sense. This makes sense. The same way you said, if you are on welfare and you need help buying milk and eggs, you get your, your WIC approved, whatever, you know, your card or your, however they do it. And you get to go buy that. You could buy it at Target. You can buy it at, you know, your local grocery store. I've seen the signs. So it's like, how, how come this concept is so easy for government on that, on that front? But then there's, there's so much opposition to it when it comes to how we're educating our kids. Because monopolies like to stay that way. They want to remain monopolies and they fight really hard to keep that money from going anywhere else. And the groups that I'm talking about are the teachers unions, the same groups that have fought tooth and nail over the past year to prevent families from taking their children's education dollars elsewhere. And then also to prevent families from having the option of in-person instruction. Uh, There have been six studies now on the topic. I've done one of them, finding that places with stronger teachers unions were less likely to reopen their schools for in-person instruction, all else equal after controlling for tons of different demographic characteristics in the area, including political partisanship and the risk of the virus as measured by cases or deaths per capita. And some studies have even looked at hospitalizations per capita. And these studies similarly generally do not find evidence that the reopening decisions over the past year have been linked to the risk of COVID in the area, Mm -hmm. but have instead been linked to teachers union power and political partisanship in the area as well. So the story over the past year is that this whole school reopening debate has been more about politics and power dynamics than about safety and the needs of millions and millions of, of students and their families. Mm-hmm. But these are the groups that that fight against this. And uh, in a way, you can't really blame them all that much. It's just they're rationally responding to the incentives that are put in front of them. I think the problem is the system itself. And the only way that we're ever going to fix that messed up set of incentives that's baked into the public school system in America today is to attach the money to the child to give that system bottom-up accountability to make them think a little bit about, well, if I make this decision, well, maybe my customers will take their money elsewhere, just like every other business in private school has to decide. Uh, Private schools are directly accountable to families, Mm -hmm. and you don't have that same kind of accountability mechanism in places where you don't have school choice. And in fact, one of those six studies that found that the reopenings were linked to teachers union influence, they also found, this was a Brown University working paper, found that public schools with places with more low-cost private schools in the form of Catholic schools were more likely to reopen in person as well. Mm-hmm. which suggests that competitive pressures and incentives yeah. had a lot to do with these decisions. Yeah, that makes total sense. And uh, I, I mean, my audience knows this, but I have my, I have one kindergartner and she's in private school and our school has been open since last August, the whole time, because they knew, um, and I'm in Kansas, so maybe not one of the most hard hit areas, but we were on whatever the red classification was for a while um, back in the, in the fall. Uh, they they knew that they didn't have a choice. They had to open, they had to hold school or their people weren't going to get paid. People are not going to pay 
private school tuition to homeschool their children. They're just going to pull them out and buy some curriculum, you know, and that's what we were going to do. Yeah, look, the private schools have been fighting to reopen or they've been open essentially the entire past mm-hmm. year. I mean, you had Kentucky private schools took the fight all the way to the Supreme Court to for the right to reopen for their customers. You had Catholic school, a Catholic school in Sacramento Ca- County, California, rebranded itself as a daycare to get around the government's arbitrary school closure rules. And they retrained all of their teachers as daycare providers just to get around these ridiculous regulations. Mm -hmm. But the teachers unions were doing the opposite. They were cheering the closure decisions. They were fighting to, to, to move the reopening date date back, back further and further and and moving the goalposts every step of the way. And, And look, it's not because the people in one sector are better than the people in the other sector. It's, it's almost all about incentives. It's just mm-hmm. that one of these sectors gets your money regardless of whether they open their doors for business. And that's why I argue mm-hmm. to change that weird set of incentives that are essentially backwards in the public school system. I mean, when yeah. a private school underperforms, it shuts down. When a public school underperforms, it gets more money because they can lobby and say, well, we're doing such a bad job because we need more money. And we saw that yeah. this past year with the uh, the school reopening stimulus funding. We poured almost $200 billion into the school system through the federal government in addition with COVID stimulus funding this year. And they even tried to pass a, an amendment to the most recent stimulus bill of $123 billion through, for K-12 education. They tried to pass an amendment in the Senate to say that this money would have to, th- this money would have to be spent for reopening the schools and that uh, it would be contingent upon actually reopening the schools for in-person instruction given that all the teachers were vaccinated. They couldn't even pass that amendment. And my latest study with MIT's Christos McCready's, we also found that looking at over 12,000 school districts in the U.S. and their reopening decisions, the funding levels were not related to the reopening decisions of schools. So you have, I mean, if you, if you just look at Florida and California, Florida spends about $10,700 per student, about 30% less than the national average. And essentially all of their families have the option of in-person instruction in that state. But then you go over to California, they spend about 38% more per student per year than in Florida. uh, And they have stronger teachers unions, yet most students do not have the option of in-person instruction. So it doesn't seem like it's about money. It doesn't seem like it's about safety. It seems more like it has to do with the union's power. Yeah. I think that's um, an astute observation while at the same time, going, okay, yeah, that, that makes complete sense. It's, it's, it seems to be almost um, uh, just the, the obvious answer. And what, from what we know about human nature, that of course, we're going to act based on incentive of self-preservation and whatever is best for ourselves would make complete sense that anyone who could get the same amount of money with less work would want to go that route. That's what I'd want to do. I'm a business owner. I, if I can cut corners and, and come out with, or or save money on the product, for instance, and uh, I'm, I'm in web design. So if I can pay my developer less, less money per hour to get the same amount, the the same quality of work, then that's great. I'm going to make a better profit and, and that's good for my business as long as it's ethical, you know? So there's no reason not to do that. Um, and however, I I think that there's this, like, there's this denial of what we know about human nature by, uh, these teachers unions and and, and people who support them maybe just aren't thinking clearly. They don't have a good understanding of that. That's how it works, that that they're going to act in their own best interest, not necessarily the interests of the students, which is why we have supposedly, I guess, which is why we have these 
these public schools that are that are meant to be a right that you have as a citizen of this country to be educated, a right to an education. And yet it's it's seeming like that's kind of diminishing that that right or that value that we have of of education is diminishing the longer that we've seen COVID go on, the more that the unions have um, pulled their weight. And it's just really discouraging to see that. Yeah, and I'm fine with the existence of unions. The problem is they fight against any form of accountability, especially when it comes to people voting with their feet and taking their money elsewhere. But if we had universal school choice and everybody would, were able to take their children's education dollars to the best provider, it wouldn't be all that much of a problem if the public school teachers unions lobbied for, for ridiculous policies, mm. because then you could say, okay, well, if you want to do that over there, fine, but I'm going to go somewhere else that's actually right. providing an adequate right. education and a better product. I mean, right. in the private sector, if a grocery store, uh, if their employees, for example, all just walked out one day, it would kind of be inconvenient, but it wouldn't be devastating because we could say, okay, well, if, if Walmart employees are going on strike today, I can go to Trader Joe's and hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. And then the employer would have real incentives to change things if something was actually going on. Mm-hmm. But with the public school system, when the, when the public employees strike and you don't have school choice, the people that feel the pain are the customers, the families yeah. and their students. And the employer, the district, doesn't really feel much pain at all. So they don't have an incentive to change things, even when the public school teachers strike. So just let me take my money elsewhere and it won't be much of an issue. And you can do whatever you want with the public school policies. Uh, and, and what's interesting over the past year is that, you know, that we have all these studies suggesting that the teachers unions had, had something to do with it. And we, we've seen it in the news over the past year, uh, teachers unions lobbying to keep schools closed for in-person instruction. We have tons of science to suggest that schools can reopen safely. The latest review of the evidence of 130 studies by AEI's John Bailey suggested schools are not major contributors of the virus. So it can be done safely. But what was really interesting to me over the past year was more than just these studies was just the hypocrisy on the ground. I mean, you had incident incidents of Chicago Teachers Union board member, um, you know, went to Puerto Rico and vacationed and traveled in person, but then railed against their members returning to work in person. You had the Berkeley Teachers Union president in California railing against their members going back to work while sending their own kid to an in-person private school. And it just begs all these questions. If it's safe enough for you to travel, if it's safe enough to send your own kid to in-person instruction in a private school, why isn't it safe enough for your members to return to work? The answer is pretty obvious. People like to uh, travel to Puerto Rico. They don't like going to work as much as they would like. And that doesn't mean they're bad people, right? It's just they're reacting to the weird incentives that are put before them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you had other weird things like school districts all across the country. They were saying it's not safe enough for in-person instruction, but we're going to open the same schools the public schools for in-person childcare services while charging families out of pocket in addition to what they were already paying through the mm-hmm. property tax system. Essentially a form of extortion on the on the part of the school districts. And the reason for this, which was just didn't make sense to me, like why is it safe enough for for the childcare but not the learning? And why is it only safe enough when you're charging families twice essentially through this form of extortion? And what was happening in like most of these school districts was the public school employees were staying home and teaching virtually through the comfort of their own home. The public school buildings were open and then they had private sector employees from the YMCA and other private businesses coming into those same schools and providing the in-person childcare services. So they had to pay out of pocket for those people. 
for the new employees and they had to pay through the property tax system for the employees that they were paying uh, every other year, right. which was great for the employees, but it was horrible for the families. So the f- families have really gotten the short end of the stick over the past year. They've always gotten a bad deal when it comes to K-12 education. And the one silver lining here is that families are starting to figure this this out. I mean, they've been mm-hmm. scrambling over the past year and they're, they're seeing that th- this building staying closed I'm scrambling going over here, but the money staying in this closed building, that doesn't make any sense at all. So if you look at the latest Real Clear Opinion Research polling on this, support for funding students directly has jumped in just a few months by 10 percentage points from 67% to 77% support among families who had their kids in the public school. Um, So there's a surge in support for this, and there's bills being introduced in at least 30 states now across the U.S. to fund students as opposed to systems. So the silver lining here is I think the teachers unions for all the bad that they've done over the past year have done some good in that they've provided free advertising for school choice and they've done more to advance the concept of school choice than anyone could have ever imagined. Let me interrupt this episode really quickly to let you know about the sponsor of this episode, which is me. Not me, the podcaster, me, the web designer and graphic designer. So my business, H. Williams Creative, helps clients every single day brand themselves, show up beautifully online uh, with WordPress websites, and accomplish all kinds of digital marketing tasks that people need help with, whether that is social media templates, email marketing campaigns, uh, setting up integrations on your website, or redesigning your brand. Whatever it is, I can help. And if I can't, I'll be honest and let you know. But I love to help small businesses and entrepreneurs really show up with excellence online. This is something that I've been doing for almost a decade. And I would love to chat with you about your project if you need help in any capacity with your business's online brand or website. Go to my website, hwilliamscreative.com, or you can email me and uh, we'll chat, find a time to, to hop on the phone at Haley at hwilliamscreative.com. All right, back to my conversation with Corey DeAngelis. Yeah, I think you're so right. Uh, that is that is the silver lining on this year of, of COVID and last year, just all of the disappointments and just the terrible outcomes we've seen for kids. And, and you know, we can talk about the rise in depression and mental health issues. But I mean, man, I, I hope that this is the thing that, that it really takes us over, over that cliff of actually taking the next step. And, and like you said, those 30 bills or those 30 States that have introduced this legislation, every time you post about one, I see it come come up in my feed and I'm like, Oh my gosh, another one. This is great. Like, but then how do we, what, what are we expecting to see come from that or, or what's next in some of those places? Like I know my state, Kansas is one of them. And yet I'm not sure what that means for me, especially as a parent that I'm, I'm not ever going to have my kids in public school. So I'm, I'm committed to our path regardless, but I, I would like to see that happen. What can I expect from that type of legislation? I think Kansas is actually one of the states that have that passed one of these, at least one of these bills. I think there might be two bills in Kansas, Kansas, but at least one of them have passed out of one chamber, either the Mm -hmm. Senate or the House. And I think we're expecting um, the full legislature to pass one of those bills pretty Mm -hmm. soon, if not today or or sometime soon, uh, is what I've heard about what's going on on the ground in Kansas. And other states have already passed some bills. For example, in West Virginia, they just signed into law the most expansive 
proposal this year, and it'll be the biggest education savings account program in the country. Over 90% of school-aged children in West Virginia will be be eligible for these funds. Wow. Um, Kansas, I'm not particular on the, uh, I'm not uh, sure on the particular, you know, uh, who's eligible, who's not. Um, I guess I meant like holistically as, as we're seeing this, these bills come up and, and as I, I'm seeing you post about them, like, is it just going to depend on whether the legislature, you know, signs off on these things, yep. whether they move forward? Is that, what does that indicate to you? Is there, is this is just good signs? And what would you say about that? Yeah. So the introduction of the bills is a, is a good sign uh, to begin with, but it's true that it has to go through the legislature, it has to pass through a committee, it has to pass through a chamber, then it has to pass through the next chamber, and then it has to be signed into law. So this is a long process. The introduction is just one part of that. Yeah. And I try to uh, update everyone whenever mm-hmm. something passes a committee or a chamber. Things are moving pretty pretty well in, in a lot of states. There are some states that, that that just didn't happen, like New Mexico introduced the bill, but it didn't didn't get out of a committee. Washington and Oregon introduced bills that just not happened and didn't didn't get out of committee. The red states are the ones that are more likely to be able to pass this. States like Kansas, mm-hmm. um, v- govern- governors can even veto bills after mm-hmm. they get out of both chambers. For example, in Kentucky. They had House and Senate both pass a very expansive bill to fund students directly. It would have been this, it would have, it was, uh, it did end up passing, but the the governor uh, vetoed it. The House and Senate got just enough votes to override the veto of Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir, who sent his own kids to private school and attended Mm. private school himself. Um, But then, yeah, which is fine. He should be able to, he should, every family should access the best educational options for them, exactly. but they shouldn't try to shut the door behind them and deny school choice to other families. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they overrode rode the veto uh, there. And then uh, depending on the bill, the, the, the programs will start and then families can start to apply for the funds. Okay. Uh, so it could be a year or two for, for, depends on the state. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful to know. Um, another question that I get from my audience whenever I have talked about school choice as a, as a concept, because it is new for a lot of people. Um, I have a lot of uh, moms in my audience that homeschool their kids. And mm-hmm. um, I've even had some people who have said, I have worked really hard not to need any sort of government assistance. And I'm concerned that I like the sound of, you know, not paying property taxes to a school that I'm not using, but I don't want to become beholden to the government as far as dictating what I can teach my children. And that's their concern. What can you tell us about that? My initial response, and I've heard this a lot from the libertarian community, and I'm a staunch libertarian myself, so I understand the concern. But my main response, and it is a libertarian response, is that every single family has the choice to accept the funding or not. And every single family can make that cost-benefit decision. There, there are going to be some regulations. We can't really get around that. We can try to reduce the amount of regulations that are tied to the funds, but uh, there, there's, you know, you can't really eliminate that concern, even if you don't have a school choice program, because the government can still regulate homeschoolers absent the funding. But every family can make that regulatory cost versus financial benefit decision, and if it's too much, then you should be able to say nope, and no, no private school choice program or education savings account program has ever forced this on individual schools or individual families. There's always Mm -hmm. that choice. 
Yeah. Um, and then my other response is that even if there are some regulations, uh, and I will say the education savings accounts tend to have the, the fewest regulations. Sometimes they may have a nationally norm reference standardized test. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's just something as basic as you got to make sure it's being spent on education. You can't take it, go out to a nice restaurant with the money. Yeah. So that seems to be like, you know, not too intrusive, like right. just making sure it's on education, right. uh, broadly speaking. Um, and so you have to look That's at the, option. you do yeah. have to look at the specific uh, program. But then my other response is, even if it is regulated in a way that you don't like, at least there are some benefits to that. It could reduce the likelihood of calls for future regulation. And that one, you get a bigger tent. And so you have more of a defense mechanism against uh, groups that would call to regulate homeschooling because then you'll have more power in numbers to defend against those, those, mm-hmm. those um, attacks. And then two, it, homeschooling could become more mainstream if you have more people that are now able to do it, that, that wouldn't be able to, uh, that wouldn't be able to make that decision uh, beforehand mm-hmm. or didn't have the financial means to do so before. So now you'll have more of a mainstream view uh, of homeschooling. So then society may be less likely to call for regulations of, right. of, of homeschooling. Um, my third yeah. response is that these bills have typically been written in ways to, in, in order to, to, to make sure the homeschool community is happy with them. A lot, a lot of these bills will do is that they'll define a student using education savings accounts funding as an ESA student, not as a homeschooling student to keep mm-hmm. it separate legally Mm-hmm. So that um, because there's this separation, there'd be less likelihood that any of these regulations would spill over to Got the it. homeschool community. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's, I think, comforting to hear that, yeah, you've got the choice to to not take that and then not have to worry about the regulations. But um, But even just from maybe this is not the strongest argument for some people, but I'm thinking, you know, why would we not want at least those people who are going to use it to have the option to to get the best education available to them? Like you said, I mean, even if I'm going to forego taking that funding, uh, why wouldn't I want my neighbor? Uh, let's say their kid gets, I, I had a neighbor, actually, I, I have a neighbor who had the situation where her daughter was getting bullied at school. And what if she wanted to switch schools because the situation was so bad and it was being handled so terribly by the administration? Um, why wouldn't I want her to be able to do that, you know, and go to another neighborhood school, which is five minutes away? Yeah. And, and most homeschooling families are, I would say, a type that is not does not want to control the decisions of other families. So mm-hmm. as long as they have their own choice and, and those right. other families have their own choice, I think we can all get along here. Mm-hmm. Um even if you disagree with some of the regulations and look, we can't make perfect the enemy of the good, as you pointed out that the government school system is going to be in every case, more regulated than these private school choice programs or yeah. money following the child programs. Um, so the default is, you know, if you don't allow this choice, a lot of these kids are going to be stuck in that government run institution where they could be having uh, poor educational experiences or bullying or all these other types of problems that can happen absent that choice. So yeah, I think uh, for the most part, we can, we can get, we can agree on this. Yeah, absolutely. What have you seen? I mentioned it earlier, but uh, from your, I know you're just in the numbers all the time, but what kind of data have you seen emerge from uh, just the state of uh, children across the nation, their mental health and, and all of the effects of COVID not being in school, not being able to, you know, be in those environments that, that is so essential for them? What, what is some of the data that you've seen? 
And I will say uh, before I share the data, this is not conflating government schooling at home with homeschooling. Uh, you know, not having the choice of in-person instruction isn't the same thing as voluntary homeschooling. So That's we shouldn't true, conflate yeah. the two. But from what we've seen, this forced version of government schooling at home or, or preventing families from having in-person options uh, in one way or another, we've seen huge upticks in the percentage of students failing their classes. For example, in my area, Fairfax County Public Schools, their number of students failing two or more classes relative to the previous school year has increased by 83%. And that number has increased by 111% for students with special needs. There's been a couple of studies by a firm called McKinsey and Company of millions of students over the past uh, year or so, finding that uh, students have lost months and months of learning. And this has led to inequities as well because students with from disadvantaged backgrounds and also students from, of color and students from lower income families, they've seen bigger learning losses than, than the more advantaged uh, populations. Mm -hmm. So this has led to our, you know, exacerbations of already existing inequities in our society, but it's, it gets worse than just the academic outcomes. Uh, if you look at the mental health issues, that's really been on the rise, not giving families the option to, uh, to have that in-person experience has led to significant mental health increases. You look at surveys from Pew Research, families are reporting that mental health issues have gone up since the school closures. You've seen uh, in one school district in particular, Clark County Public Schools, the fifth largest public, uh, public school district in the nation, they experienced a, they reported a doubling of the percentage of students that, or the number of students that committed suicide relative to the previous school year. So Tons of issues here with mental health. Um, there have been issues with uh, other things that we just didn't we just didn't even think about at first. Um, labor market effects. There have been reductions, huge reductions in the percentage of females participating in the labor force uh, mm -hmm. because of school closures, and the percentage of females returning to the labor force after um, uh, in in recent months has also been lower than the percentage of males returning to the workforce. So there's been a uh, increase in inequities in the labor force as well. Um, and look, no one really meant for any of this to happen, I don't think. I think these are our unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. But I think the mistake all along has been people highlighting the risks of reopening schools and giving families that choice, but then completely ignoring any of the risks of keeping that option off the table. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've seen with the evidence so far is that we've kept the school closed with little benefit in terms of reducing the risk of the virus, but then we've created all of these problems as far as uh, academic outcomes right. being harmed, mental health issues, physical issues. There have been a Wall Street Journal article just reported pretty recently, uh, pediatricians uh, reporting that elementary age students gaining 20 to 30 pounds over the past year, mm -hmm. um, and then issues with the labor force as well. So right. there've been all of these costs associated with keeping schools closed and by and, and not giving families the choice that I would say outweigh the, the little benefits that we've seen, if any, of, right. of, of keeping the schools closed. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think yeah, little if any. And in the beginning, you could say, sure, there was some good intent there. Perhaps people really did believe there was 
uh, a risk to these students and they wanted to protect them. And I mean, I've continued to say, look, if if this was a virus that was that was uh, plowing down children and they were the main if, if that's what we were dealing with, if they were the main ones who were at risk, I would not have the stance that I have of, I want my daughter in person. I want her to go to school. I wouldn't have that stance. Of course not. Because my, my heart and my desire is to protect her and give her the best life and the best education that I can as her parent. I think most people feel that way. So again, it's like, we, it's almost like we're acting as though we're dealing with something that is a death sentence and it's not, that's not what we've seen. We've not seen that children are the main ones that are spreading it or getting it or dying from this disease. And so I think we also just have to be realistic and looking at, look, if this was something that was a high risk for them, I think that we would all be having a very different conversation, but given that it's not like what, what, what's the hesitation? Well, and look, I mean, there's tons of science, science to suggest now that the schools can safely reopen, but even more powerful than the science was what was happening on the ground. I mean, this didn't happen in any other industry. It didn't happen in the schooling industry yeah. with with private schools either. They pushed pretty quickly to, to get mm-hmm. back to in-person instruction. So the science is one thing that's on the side of freedom and reopening, but then also just all of these things like, well, the grocery store workers didn't pour into the streets um, <laughs> with fake tombstones and, and coffins and... Um, in DC, they the, the the public school teachers union put fake body bags in the front of the public school offices oh to protest Rio because you know they were trying to say that you're trying to kill us for returning yeah. to school to re- to return to work. But no other employees did this. And again, I think it was like a little out there to really play that card. But again, I'm I'm not going to say it's that they have bad intentions. They may have actually kind of felt a little worried, but. The thing is, no one really, no one else really did this. Yeah. And it's because all of these other sectors with grocery stores, they know if, if they pulled this, well, they're, they're mm-hmm. going to be out of job. They're going to be out yeah. of business. How are they going to pay their rent? Private schools knew this as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if your grocery store doesn't reopen, you can take your money elsewhere. If your school doesn't reopen, you should similarly be able to take your children's education dollars elsewhere. Right. And that's all I'm arguing for. You can complain and do whatever you want. Um, in any industry. And I, I don't have a problem with that. The problem is when you, you can complain and uh, say things that aren't grounded in science, and then I get to feel all the pain as the customer mm-hmm. and you get to continue extracting my resources from me. That just that wouldn't make sense in any other industry. It, it right. shouldn't make sense in K-12 education either. And this is clicking for so many parents this year. And that's why we're seeing surges in support for mm-hmm. funding the students directly. And that's why we're seeing all these bills in different states this year to fund the students directly. So um, yeah. the teachers unions are the real heroes this year in one way, in that <laughs> they've provided more support for alternatives. I mean, it's, it's yeah. one thing for an education system to get your children's education dollars, regardless of how well they do and regardless of how satisfied the families are. But it's another conversation altogether for that same institution to continue getting your children's education dollars, regardless of whether they even open their doors for business. Exactly. And it's just gotten so ridiculous over the past year Mm -hmm. that finally people are waking up to the idea and the fact that there's no good reason to fund closed institutions Mm -hmm. when we can fund the students directly instead. Yeah, you're exactly right. It was, 
it was evident before, but now it is undeniable. It is just, it is so clear that that's the way that it should be done. And I'm glad that more people are seeing that. And honestly, I, I'll take all the theatrics that they want to bring if it leads to more people being like, are you serious? Like, this is unreal. I mean, in Chicago, did you see the interpretive dance video that yes. uh, they put out um, to protest the reopening of it's schools? I, why did Why did they post that? Like, everybody was like, are you serious? Is this a parody account? Like, yeah. Did you really think this was a good idea? I mean, I'm glad that's just like spinning in people's faces, honestly. Well, and now you have the Los Angeles teachers union just secured uh, childcare payments for their teachers as a condition of reopening the schools. They get $500 a week, I think, or oh my, maybe not a week, maybe it's a month. Uh, anyway, but they're securing all of these benefits by using, by using their position of power which is they get your money either way and they can refuse the service. So they're in a perfect bargaining position, especially this year, because they can always just say, Oh, we're doing it for the safety. We're scared to go back to work. Yeah. And then they could, they can use that leverage that, that bargaining position to get all of these other benefits. Right. Um, And that's the real problem here. I want to, I don't think anybody would really care if they, if they made these demands if you could just say, okay, well, see ya, I'm going somewhere else. I mean, at the right. beginning of all of this, uh, the Los Angeles Teachers Union started including political demands in their reopening, in their, in their reports on reopening mm-hmm. schools. They called for defunding the police. They called for Medicare for all and a wealth tax. They right. called to ban charter right. schools, their competition in their report on reopening schools. Like this doesn't seem like it's about actually. Yeah. And then, and then, safety. and then people are like, why are you making this virus so political? I don't know why you're making it political. Just trust the science. It's like, wait, hold on. Who's making it political? Like, it's not me. That's for sure. Well, yeah. And then you had uh, at least a dozen teachers unions on two occasions uh, participate in something called a national day of resistance. The first time they did it, it was them on, on the streets. Um, and then they got a little smarter after people started saying, well, if you can protest in person, why can't you go to work in person? This doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense. There's so many people like sardines in the streets. Why can you do that, but not go back to work? And so they, in the second, the second uh, iteration of that national day of resistance, I think they did a lot of online events mm-hmm. instead because they understood that the optics didn't really look all that great for them to be protesting in person, but not working in person. Right. Um, but then they, they joined together with the, the Democratic Socialists of America, mm-hmm. and they called for similar political demands of, of police-free schools. They called for a massive infusion of federal dollars, of course. We all, we all knew that they were going to call for that, even though they've already gotten that. Um, and they called for rent cancellation and mortgage cancellation, I believe, and all of these other just unrelated things. Uh, uh, a, a ban on, on on new charter or voucher programs, essentially a ban on their competition. I think one of them called for a ban on standardized tests. It's like, I thought this was about getting the schools. So, I mean, if they would have just stopped that we need more staffing and we need yeah. more funding, you could kind of be like, okay, but it wasn't that they called for, they tried to get every little thing that they yeah. wanted. They overplayed their hand. They overplayed their hand, That's which exactly is what right. we've seen happen so many times this year. And I, I see, I have no more shock left because of all of the ridiculous headlines. Like I have no shock left. I've just, I've been overshocked by everything. And now I'm like, you know what? Just keep going, keep, keep going. Because all you're doing 
is waking people up to the ridiculousness of, of what you really have always been and believed, but now it's just like, you, you're, you're not even hiding it. You're just, you're just, it's, it's egregious. And so I'm, I'm like, okay, let's just see how, how far are you willing to take this? And maybe, maybe more people will wake up. Yeah. And hopefully 2021 will be the year of school choice. I mean, we're already seeing a lot of big programs passing. I just talked about West Virginia. That'll be the biggest education savings account program in the nation. And they already signed it into law. Kentucky will be the second largest that was already uh, signed into law by the secretary of state in Kentucky. So uh, in, in 2011, Wall Street Journal called that the year of school choice. I have a feeling that 2021, 10 years later, is going to be the year of school choice and they'll probably yeah. have to update their headline from before. <laughs> yeah. Well, that might not be the only headline they have to update. Uh, yeah. That's, that's really great to hear and encouraging for, for parents who are like, wow, I, I like this. What do I, how can I, how can I help? What, is there anything I can do where I'm at in my state to move this along or be a, you know, be a voice in my community? Yeah, I would reach out to the American Federation for Children. I just started my role there last week, um, where I'm the National Director of Research. And I think we're doing some of the best work on mobilizing families and the communities to support school choice and to get it done on the ground as well. Um, so I, I would I would look look to 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 that organization. Um, and then also, yeah, just follow the bills that are going on in your states. Uh, I have a tracker at the Educational Freedom Institute. Uh, if you look at our website, it's the active legislation map. It's efinstitute.org. And you can look and see if your state's on the list. There's about 30 or more states right now on that list. And you can click and look at the bill that would fund students as opposed to systems. And then you can contact your legislators and tell them, hey, this uh, seems like a good idea. Um, uh, I, you know, I support this. They're hearing it from the teachers unions. They're hearing the opposite side of the story. But families need to stick up for themselves and their children and this year is the best time to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's huge momentum this year. Uh, and, it's, and it's, again, like you said, because the teachers unions have overplayed their hand and we might as well capitalize on the moment mm-hmm. and uh, do the right thing for, for families. Yeah. Um, I have one more question that I just realized I forgot to ask. I kind of, we talked about the public school and the homeschool, but for those parents who are private school like me, what do I need to be aware of? Cause I, the last thing I want is the government telling my private school what they can and can't teach or what we need to, you know, what our curriculum can contain. Um, what are the, what are some things that I need to keep in mind as these bills, especially where I'm at, you know, uh, move forward. Yeah. Essentially all of them, uh, can be used for private school tuition and fees, even the education savings accounts. That's one of the expenses that it can be used for. Um, look into the bills and see what kind of regulations are attached to them. Um, but again, the private school can say, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. Uh, yeah. And they actually do. There are a lot of private schools do just say, I'm not going to participate. For example, in the highly regulated Louisiana scholarship program, for example, they have a pretty large amount of regulations. I'd say it's one of the most regulated programs in the country. In the first year of the evaluation of the program, the re- researchers have separately found that only about a third of the private schools chose to actually participate in the program. Mm-hmm. So two thirds said, no, nah, that's, that's a deal I'm not willing to take. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a model that's working for my customers. I'm not going to do mm-hmm. it. So, um, you know, if something passes like this, you could, you could talk to your private school leaders. You could also talk to your lawmakers and say, Hey, this is a good idea, but I don't want this, that, or the other regulation. Right. Um, you know, I, I would support it, but you, you should, 
um, take this, you know, amend it in this way to make sure. it more, more, uh, um, uh, more uh, of a Suitable free or freedom. Yeah. Suit- yeah. An unregulated bill that yeah. would allow for more freedom and, and specialization on the part of my private school. Okay. Uh, so yeah. yeah, I would, I would check into all of these things, but again, um, even if the program is regulated, I think it is a step in the right direction because every family and school can say no. Right. Um, Whereas right now we can't. <laughs> yeah. And so this, you know, this, there will always be private schools that say no, mm-hmm. there will always be families that say no. And at least even if you have a regulated program, more private schools will enter into the market and then you'll, you'll have a higher supply uh, providers and more competition mm-hmm. could, could lead to a lowering of tuition over time from that competition and increase in supply. And you'd have more options. Yeah. Um, so, so hypothetically, yeah, a, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say, I, it's, I think it's a win-win. Yeah. Hypothetically, where does that property tax money go? If not to your local schools? Yeah, it could uh, go back into the general fund in the, in the budget. Um, but a way, a way that a lot of these things work is that the funding amount that would have went to your public school in order to get these things passed, the legislators will write bills in ways that are a percentage of what would have been spent in the public schools. Mm. A lot of the times it's only about half of what you would have gotten in your public school. Mm -hmm. That way the local property taxpayer has a benefit. Mm -hmm. The public school gets a little bit of a benefit too. They get to keep some of the money for students they are no longer educating so mm-hmm. on a per people basis, they actually end up with more funding per student. Mm-hmm. So when they say like, this is defunding the public schools, they're totally backwards. If you look at the numbers, they actually right. financially benefit on a per people basis. And then two, the money doesn't belong to the school. So when, when they try to say that this steals money from public schools, that well, well, the money belongs to the child, it should follow the child, not the institution. Yeah. No one would say that allowing families to choose their grocery store steals money from Safeway. Everybody would find that to be ridiculous because they'd say, well, the money doesn't belong to Safeway. It belongs to me. It belongs to my family. Um, mm-hmm. And so similarly with K-12 education, the money belongs to the student and their family, not to any particular public or private school. Right. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what happens. It, some of it will go back to the school. Some of it will go back to the uh, taxpayer as a benefit as well. It just okay. depends on the particular bill. And then the Perfect. rest follows yeah. the child. Great. Thanks for explaining that. I'll make sure and link everything that you mentioned, including that um, the American Federation for Children. Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. I'll link that. And uh, the other, what was the other place that you mentioned? You had the the tracker. Yeah. So the American Federation for Children website is federationforchildren.org. And then the active legislation tracker is at efinstitute.org. That's the Educational Freedom Institute website. Okay. I'm going to put those in the show notes so people can just scroll down and click that real easily if they want to um, take the next step and find out how they can get involved in their community. So thank you so much, Corey, for your time and all of your great work on this. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. That's all I have for you today. Uh, Come find me on Instagram and say hi at HaleyWilliams.Kindled. You can get show notes and uh, more information on every episode at my website, KindledPodcast.com. And uh, I will see you on Friday if you're in Patreon. And if not, I'll see you next Monday. Bye, guys.